There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. We will hold accountable anyone who is criminally responsible for attempting to interfere with the transfer, legitimate lawful transfer of power from one administration to the next. Attorney General Merrick Garland in a rare interview tells NBC's Lester Holt what might happen next in the DOG's investigation of the January 6th insurrection. Speaking of which, the man who calls it all was back in Washington today and many of the same Republican politicians who are running up that hill still came out to kiss his ring. Plus, the pain that Alex Jones inflicted on the families of the Sandy Hook massacre victims as he stands trial for defamation. And Dr. Anthony Fauci will be my guest on White House plans to get the monkeypox outbreak under control. Not a sentence I ever thought I would say. Good evening, everyone. Jason Johnson in tonight for Joy Reid. We begin the readout tonight with signs the Justice Department is widening its investigation into January 6th and the efforts to overturn the election. In an exclusive interview today with NBC's Lester Holt, Attorney General Merrick Garland said the department's investigation is moving at an unprecedented speed... And he refuses to rule out prosecuting the twice impeached former president for his actions. You said in no uncertain terms the other day that no one is above the law. Yeah. That said, um, the indictment of a former president, of a perhaps candidate for president, would arguably tear the country apart. Is that your concern as you make your decision down the road here? Do you have to think about things like that? Look, we pursue justice without fear or favor. We intend to hold everyone, anyone, who was criminally responsible for the events surrounding January 6th, for any attempt to interfere with the lawful transfer of power from one administration to another, accountable. That's what we do. We don't pay any attention to other uh, issues with respect to that. Garland spoke with NBC News after new signs emerged that the DOJ is expanding its scope, looking beyond the attack on the Capitol and those involved in fake elector schemes. Although the Washington Post reports that on that front, that a grand jury sent subpoenas to two Arizona Republicans last month asking for communications relating to any effort, plan or attempt to serve as an elector for the former president. Meanwhile, NBC News confirmed that Mark Short, chief of staff for former Vice President Mike Pence, appeared before a federal grand jury last week. According to multiple reports, Greg Jacob, Pence's former legal counsel, has also testified. Short is the highest ranking former White House official known that we know of to have testified before the grand jury. It's with Pence at the Capitol during the insurrection and testified before the House Select Committee in January. Short confirmed his grand jury appearance in an interview with ABC News. I think that uh, having the, the Capitol ransacked the way that it was, I think, did present uh, liability and danger. And I think the Secret Service did a phenomenal job that day. I, I think that the, the bigger risk, and despite the way perhaps it was characterized in the hearings last week, candidly, is that if the 
mob had gotten closer to the vice president, I do think there would have been a massacre in the Capitol that day. You think? Meanwhile, there are new developments tonight relating to the Secret Service and text messages from the day of the insurrection that have been erased. Two Democratic House committee chairs, Carolyn Maloney of Oversight and Benny Thompson of Homeland Security, called for the inspector general of the Department of Homeland Security to recuse himself from the investigation into the erased text. In a letter to Inspector General Joseph Kafari, they note his, quote, failure to promptly notify Congress of crucial information in his investigation, adding that, quote, these omissions left Congress in the dark about key developments in this investigation and may have cost investigators precious time to capture relevant evidence. It's a lot. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell of California and Paul Butler, Georgetown law professor and a former federal prosecutor. I'm very happy to have you on, uh, both of you on tonight. Uh, Congressman, I will start with you. I always think this is important when we talk about Mayor Garland. He doesn't give a lot of interviews. As a member of Congress, as someone who is involved and concerned, was sort of a direct target of the insurrection, how comforted were you by Merrick Garland's interview? Did he say things that that bolster your confidence in the DOJ? Do you now feel safer? What what was your general response to his interview today? Very comforted. Uh, good to see you in the in the chair, uh, Jason. And, and hello, Paul. Uh, but first, let me just say that the concern has been, and, and perhaps this is why he did the interview, is that because Donald Trump was a former president, that he, be, he may be afforded, you know, uh, privileges that no other everyday suspect uh, would receive. And what we want is for him to not be treated any better than any ordinary citizen and to not be treated, of course, any worse. But the evidence is so overwhelming. It's a mountain of evidence now that the committee has put forward. All of the arrows point to Donald Trump inflaming, inciting, and then aiming that mob right at the Capitol to violently obstruct Congress from doing our job and to defraud every citizen who voted in the election from having their vote counted. And Congressman, I want to follow up because I always want to ask this of any members. It's been uh, almost a year and a half uh, since the attack. And I know, look, I don't care if I worked at at Kinko's or the post office or (laughs) a grocery store. If I had been attacked at my job by an angry mob, I would be terrified of that ever possibly happening again. When you talk to members of Congress, when you guys are on your group chats, when you're having discussions, are members of Congress feeling comfortable with this investigation as employees of the state? We understand the legal arguments, but when you go to work every day, when you talk to your colleagues or people like, yeah, okay, we, we think Merrick Garland's got this handled. I would hate to ever see that day again. Is there that level of comfort amongst your colleagues? No, it, it, there's there's no comfort at all. In fact, for the first time ever uh, last week, I had to use a, a weapons screening technology at a town hall because of the overwhelming amount of threats that have come to our office and my staff. And the threats parrot the language uh, that Donald Trump and others use. I got out of my car yesterday uh, with an aide and a gentleman, a gentleman is a you know, polite way of uh, referring to this person, <laughs> stormed at me and started screaming uh, that the election was stolen and that I was a liar. I mean, the, the rhetoric that we're seeing from America's elected leaders, people running for office, people who are, you know, ho- 
colleagues of mine in this building just over my shoulder who are holding assault rifles and telling Joe Biden, I dare you to come and take this from me. People who are threatening to kill Speaker Pelosi, people who are making animated videos uh, where they depict themselves killing Joe Biden, candidates for the Senate who are saying they're going to go hunting, holding uh, firearms uh, for rhinos, Republicans in names only. This is inspiring the treason curious in America, where one-third now say they're ready to take up arms against their government. Uh, this is directly leading to that, and we saw that on January 6th. And that's why the work we have to do has to reflect that this is not looking back at an event that was in the past, but the plotters are at large, and the plotters through upcoming elections are seeking to be in charge. And some of them are still very likely in the building. Uh, Paul, I, I want to I want to play you some sound here. You know, one of the things Merrick Garland said is that the DOJ is sort of laying out a roadmap. I want to get your thoughts on this on the other side. The Justice Department has been doing the most wide ranging investigation in its history. And the committee is doing an enormously wide ranging investigation as well. It is inevitable that uh, there will be things that they find before we have found them. And there will, is inevitable that there will be things we find that they haven't found. But the Justice Department has, from the beginning, been moving urgently to learn everything we can about this period and to bring to justice everybody who's criminally responsible for interfering with the peaceful transfer of power from one administration to another, which is the fundamental element of our democracy. So, Paul, if the January 6th committee is providing a roadmap, and I don't know if, 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 if Mayor Garland, I don't know if he needs Waze or Google Maps or something, because the map seems pretty clear. I mean, Congressman Swalwell just said we, we have a very, very clear map here. So what is it going to take for the DOG to open up that app and follow the map through to the conclusion? Or are they still sort of fumbling around in, 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 in Google here? What, what's, what's it going to take for them to finally take the steps that many of us feel that they should have taken months ago? Jason, the Attorney General's statements to Lester Holt were a lot of wah, wah, wah. Merrick Garland was talking softly, but saying nothing new. That was on purpose. I think the Justice Department doesn't make statements about its investigations until it brings charges. But, but here's the tension. Prosecutors are not supposed to let politics influence their cases, but prosecutors keep up with the news. So they know that soon Trump will probably announce he's running for president. And if an indictment is handed down after that, that's going to give Trump more ammunition to say it's a political prosecution with Biden just trying to eliminate a political opponent. And you're right. The House panel has provided a roadmap to prosecuting Trump. There are different considerations in a criminal case than in a congressional investigation. But at some point, if Merrick Garland means it when he says that, Nobody is above the law. He needs to prove it by charging Donald Trump. Paul, I want to dig into that a little bit, because I, I think this idea that, you know, they don't want to be influenced by politics, it doesn't make any sense. How can you not be influenced by politics when it was a political insurrection? Right. Like if, I, if I tell you it's not me, it's you. It's definitely you. Right. So. So yeah. how so, can they not take into consideration a possible change in Congress when this investigation goes forward? Look, I understand that Garland is an institutionalist and that he doesn't want the look of the Justice Department to be political prosecutions like he's doing for Biden uh, what Barr refused to do for Trump. 
But at some point, you have to weigh the cost of not prosecuting Trump against the cost of prosecuting him. It will no doubt be divisive, but the expressive value of not prosecuting Trump is that a president can do anything and get away with it, and an ex-president can use as a defense, I'm running for re-election, to not be charged for the grossest, most violent conduct. Right. Uh, speaking of former presidents and former vice presidents, uh, Congressman, I have some sound here from former Vice President Mike Pence sort of talking about the state of the party and where their movement may be. And I want to get your thoughts on the other side of this. I don't know that our movement is that divided. I don't, I don't know that the president and I differ on issues. But we may differ on focus. I truly do believe that elections are about the future. Now, look, I don't know what could be more divisive than my former boss trying to get people to hang me on the gallows. But, hey, maybe I just haven't had that kind of work environment. Um, you know, Congressman, when you hear this sort of thing from Mike Pence, does it does it discourage you? Does it make you more frustrated thinking that many, many, many of the Republicans are still going to be in the thrall of this former president and this insurrection, despite the immediate threats and danger that it put their lives in? We need the courage that Adam Kinzinger, Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, and so many others have shown, but they're, they're on an island right now. And, and I recently asked a Homeland Security official, when America's leaders denounce violent rhetoric or if they fail to denounce it, does that have an effect on extremist groups? And, and the official, the expert said, yes, when you denounce it, it quashes it. When you fail to denounce it, they feel like they have a permissive lane. And, what, and right now, violent white nationalist extremist groups feel like they have a green light from Donald Trump and most of the MAGA Republican Party. And by the way, this party of law and order, I'm the son of a police officer. My brothers are police officers. I worked as a prosecutor. I know law and order. They are not pro-cop. They are pro-coup. And until they denounce Donald Trump, I refuse to say otherwise. And, and Paul, I want to close with this. You know, we know that obviously if you're not on the former president's side, if you're not on the side of insurrection, it can see you to be an enemy one way or another. But now, of course, we have the uh, January 6th committee coming out and saying, hey, look, uh, the president did not call troops. He had every opportunity to call sort of national defense, come in and take care. Is that sort of the kind of additional evidence that says, uh, you know, is there any is there any justification for that other than Donald Trump saying I was lazy? Is that yet another sort of straw in the hat of this committee that is very obvious that he wanted this attack to happen? We learned from the hearings last week that not only did the president fail to call off his insurrectionist troops, he actively encouraged their criminal conduct, their murderous conduct, even after he knew that they were hunting down Vice President Pence and Speaker Pelosi with the object of killing them. He did not discourage that. He encouraged that. That's got to be the most egregious conduct of a president in the history of the United States. And there's no way that Merrick Garland can ignore that. Thank you, Congressman Eric Swalwell and Paul Butler. Thank you so much for starting us off today. Up next on the readout, the last time we saw him in D.C., he was running away like a cartoon villain from, you know, the inauguration of the man who actually beat him because Donald Trump couldn't accept the fact that the majority of Americans had swiped left yet again. Today, he has returned as a visitor 
And like an abusive relationship, Republicans still flock back to him, despite him leading an insurrection that would have killed many of them. The readout with that discussion continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Donald Trump has returned to the scene of his many crimes for the first time since leaving the White House. Trump was back in Washington, D.C., speaking at the America First Agenda Summit. On his return, he was welcomed by some of the very people who were running for their lives through the hallway during the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Kevin McCarthy, Steve Scalise, Lindsey Graham, and Ted Cruz were among some of the other tethers who were there for his opening act. But while most Republicans in Congress remain in lockstep with the former twice-impeached president, the tide in conservative media outlets appears to be shifting away from Donald Trump onto the next far-right star. In the past few days, editorial boards of two Rupert Murdoch-owned conservative papers, the New York Post and Wall Street Journal, both issued harsh rebukes of Trump for his role in the insurrection. Even Trump's pals at Fox and Friends are questioning his standing as the 2024 frontrunner compared to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. That led the former president to lash out on his own social media site, calling the program, quote, terrible, saying they, quote, botched his poll numbers on purpose. Joining me now, Charlie Sykes, editor-at-large of The Bulwark, and an MSNBC contributor, and Fernando Mondi, MSNBC political analyst and pollster. I am so excited to talk to both of you guys about this tonight because I, I think this is interesting, right? I'm The idea that the right-wing media ecosphere might be moving off of Trump reminds me of that old Seinfeld episode where, like, George and, and Jerry were talking about trying to do the switch. This is not easy to do, right? This is not something you can pull off. So, so Charlie, is it possible that the Tuckers and the Sean Hannity's and everybody else in the world will actually make a move away from Trump? Or do you think this is just sort of nudging him to stay in order and, and, and keep along the lines of what they wanted in the past? You think this could be a real split? Um, well, I don't see it. I don't see it quite yet. You know, when you talk about the conservative media moving off Trump, it's, it's mainly the, the print media. Um, and they are Rupert Murdoch newspapers. But if the print uh, media was uh, that important in conservative circles, Donald Trump never would have gotten the nomination in the first place. It will be interesting to see what Fox primetime folks do. But keep in mind, you know, something's been unleashed that can't uh, be easily put back in the bottle, particularly by a party that is as feckless and gutless as uh, as this party has has been. And so, and, you know, as long as you have the you know, talk radio and you have uh, Newsmax and you have the uh, primetime of Fox, continuing to push the line, um, the split is only apparent. I mean, the other problem is simply this. 
Um, who is going to take out Donald Trump? I mean, there may be a, a consensus in among establishment Republicans that it's time to move on. But unless somebody steps up and actually does it and denounces Trump and says, me, not him, and it's one-on-one, -on -one, it won't happen. Otherwise, we'll just have a replay of 2015 and 2016. And I have to say, you know, you look at Mike Pence and you see sort of embodied the embodiment of the disappointment of, right. of of disappointing Republicans. I mean, what he did on January 6th should be the defining moment of his entire career, his entire life, rather than standing up and saying, look, this is me versus Donald Trump. He wanted to violate the Constitution. I supported the Constitution. He's walking away from his own moment of courage. That's not the kind of political guts that's going to take down Donald Trump in 2024. Look, as long as Mike Pence wants to cosplay Reek from Game of Thrones and, and take any kind of abuse and still kiss up to the former president, there is no chance that he is going to be somebody of importance. But for now, this is what brings to mind. Uh, thank you. <laughs> this is what brings to mind uh, the current governor of your state. Now, look, if you're trying to take control of a organization because the Republican is no longer a party that is in the thrall of an anti-democratic authoritarian white nationalist. That, that's not super easy. It's not barely inconvenient. That is a tough process. In Florida, do you think Ron DeSantis has the numbers, both financial and polling wise, to really make a run at Trump? Or is he just hoping that Donald Trump somehow implodes on his own and he might be able to slip in? Oh, Jason, without question, it's the latter scenario you describe. You know, DeSantis is many things. He's not a complete and total idiot. Uh, he knows that <laughs> Donald Trump made him and he also knows that Donald Trump can destroy him. And that's why the game that DeSantis is playing is the waiting game. He's probably the person most heartened by the Garland comments because it's going to take some sort of a, an act like that, an indictment of Trump, and maybe even a conviction to actually remove him from the scene completely. Last I checked, the Republican Party is still a cult. It is the cult of Donald Trump. He is the virus that took over the host. And there is no way to kill the virus without killing the host. They're married to Trump. They made it. They have to break it. There's no separating it. And as long as he has his sights on the nomination in 2024, Jason, I don't see anyone prying it from Donald Trump's cold hands. Charlie, I want to play some sound from Mark Short talking about uh, not only sort of Trump and the current state of the party, but also one of the shining lights of the Republican Party and whether this also sort of speaks to some internal conflicts we'll be seeing in the coming months. Well, I don't know if Mike Pence will run for president in 2024, but I don't think Matt Gates will have an impact on that. In fact, I'd be surprised if he was still voting. It's more likely he'll be in prison for child sex trafficking by 2024. And I'm actually surprised that Florida law enforcement still allows him to speak to teenage conferences like that. So I'm not too worried about Matt Gates. Thanks. I tried to get the production team to play the ether beat behind that. We couldn't get it fast <laughs> enough. Uh, look, it's, it's really telling when you have this sort of Republican on Republican violence. I don't think that the party is no longer a cult. But, Charlie, what do you think it says that they're no longer sort of closing ranks around somebody like Matt Gates, who seemed basically like the Teflon Don for the last year and a half, despite multiple allegations of inappropriate and possibly illegal behavior? You know, I had the same reaction listening to him that he felt uh, it looked like he was sort of unchained, that he's willing to say things that uh, they hadn't been willing to say before. But, but keep in mind, um, it's one thing to criticize somebody like Matt Gates. It's something very different to go after Donald Trump. And and Jason, I, I think your 
your analogy of the Republican Party uh, having this abusive, uh, abusive relationship with Donald Trump is very, very apt. You know, um, they can't break away from it. And, 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 the, and the more he threatens them and insults him, um, the, the tighter they cling to him. So I, I agree with the analysis that uh, we're a long way away from seeing the break. Look, um, you know, if Ron DeSantis does run against uh, D- Donald Trump, he does know what Trump will do to him. He also knows that Donald Trump is not going to accept defeat. Um, in a right. Republican primary any more than he does in a general election. So um, I, I don't want to be, you know, come off as I'm being glib here, um, but there are a lot of Republicans that basically are looking for something to happen to get them off the hook. You know, maybe right. there'll be an indictment. Maybe there'll be a meteor attack. Maybe um, there will be, you know, a deadly <laughs> Big Mac, something that will solve the Donald uh, Donald Trump problem for them because they are unwilling to do this. So, yes, they're willing to fight with one another. They're willing to pull the knives out, you know, because, look, it's a massive grift um, and there's just so much turf and they're going to be doing that. But that's a very, very different uh, sort of thing than taking on the king, the orange god king himself. And uh, so I I share Ferdinand's uh, uh, skepticism about that. And, of course, when you come for the king, you best not miss, right? Because he will come back and bury you financially and bury you rhetorically. Uh, With that in mind, you know, one of the things that we've been hearing about the last couple of weeks, there's rumors that the former twice impeached president and leader of a terrorist attack MAGA movement, Donald Trump, may be making his announcement sometime this fall. And and for not, it's not so much that I think that has an impact on, say, 2024. We don't know what's going to happen that far. But I can imagine that in places like Wisconsin, where Charlie is, in places like Pennsylvania, possibly in places like Florida, that the former president announcing is going to force some of these Senate candidates to have to declare their loyalty to him again right before the election. And it seems like sometimes Donald Trump is, is, is the best friend of the Democrats because they have somebody to run against. Do you think that potential announcement this fall could harm key Senate races if Democrats are forced or are able to show that these people are more loyal to him than the constituents of the states are running it? Oh, I absolutely do. And you have to remember, Jason, and Charlie hinted at it earlier, Donald Trump has no interest in the Republican Party. He could care less if the Republican Party succeeds or fails or blows up in history. Donald Trump cares about Donald Trump. And the other variable that we have to think about here is Donald Trump's calculation about an early announcement for president is that it it is what in his mind thinks will prevent that indictment from coming down. So when you add that element of an early announcement as a Trump legal strategy to lower the pressure that he knows is coming his way, it becomes all of the more desperate an action and all of the more demanding of total loyalty from anyone in the Republican Party. And God forbid the Republican that does not show that loyalty and kiss that ring because Trump will come after them. And Ron DeSantis, by the way, knows that better than anyone. Yes. Charlie Sykes and Fernando Amandi, thank you guys so much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Up next. Breaking news tonight from The Washington Post that the Justice Department is investigating Donald Trump's actions as part of its criminal probe of the 2020 election. More on that when we come back. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. 
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. We're following breaking news tonight in the January 6th investigation. The Washington Post reports that the Justice Department is looking into the former president's actions as part of a criminal probe, according to four people familiar. According to the Post, quote, prosecutors who are questioning witnesses before a grand jury, including two top aides of Vice President Mike Pence, have asked in recent days about conversations with Trump, his lawyers and others in his inner circle who sought to substitute Trump allies for certified electors. From some states, Joe Biden won, according to two people familiar with the matter. In addition, Justice Department investigators in April received phone records of key officials and aides in the Trump administration, including his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Paul Butler is back with me. OK, so we had to call an audible here, Paul. I'm, I'm of two minds about this, so you help me out here. Talk to me like I'm six. There's a part of me that's saying, well, okay, isn't this what they were doing all along? And there's another part of me that's saying, well, wait a minute, if they're asking for phone records, then maybe we've seen some progress between now and maybe even the A block when you and I talked before. So how should we take this new report? Is this something new or is this just basically Merrick Garland acknowledging something that we assumed was happening all along? Jason, the stakes just got way higher. Donald Trump may now be the subject of a federal grand jury investigation. Now, that's different from being a target. Criminal charges are not imminent, but the grand jury is actively investigating Trump's criminal conduct. This is historic. So now they've got grand juries. Now that they're investigating him for, for direct criminal conduct, that, so as you said, this is lighting the candle, lighting the giant, you know, bomb. Okay, it's sizzling. Does that mean that we could see something in the next 18 months? Does that mean that, uh, I mean, by the time you are able to have this information leaked out, does that mean that you're rounding the curve? Or does that mean this is likely just beginning? Uh, we have no idea because the Department of Justice just doesn't talk about its pace, which appeared until really this week to be extremely slow. And now it seems much faster paced. Jason, I, I think the Justice Department is interested in, in two different kinds of, of crime. So one is the, the violence and blood that we associate with Insurrection Day, January 6th. And, and we know that one of these witnesses, Mark Short, warned the Secret Service that Mike Pence was in danger because Donald Trump was going to turn on him. So think of crimes like sedition and incitement that these new witnesses are being questioned on. But both these witnesses were also at that wacko meeting at the Oval Office where Trump leaned hard on Pence to stop the vote certification. And, and that raises crimes like conspiracy to defraud the United right. States, conspiracy to impede congressional investigation. So I, I think this is encouraging news for people who want Trump to be brought to justice. Joining me now on the phone is Carol Linning of The Washington Post. Carol, thank you so much for, for joining us tonight uh, with this breaking news. So I, I have to ask you, you know, 
you're going to have the people who are sort of the, the, the Merrick Garland supporters. They're like, aha, we told you all along. This is what was happening. You'll have the other side to say, hey, you know, this might be a result of pressure from Congress and the January 6th committee and, and, and commentators and everything else like that. Where would you place this breaking news? Is this a, a reflection of pressure? Is the DOJ saying, yeah, hey, everybody, get off our back. We're doing this. Uh, or is this a reflection of, you know, sort of the ongoing process and, and we should have trusted Mayor Garland all along? You know, I like to deal in facts and the facts that we discovered, my, my great colleagues and I at the Washington Post are as follows that starting relatively slowly, the Department of Justice began eyeing Team Trump and and eyeing Trump himself and his actions. Um, And when I say slowly, remember, January 6th and the effort to overturn the election results of 2020 began in November of 2020 and continued to January 2021. And the first sign we can discover of the Justice Department really swinging their 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 microscope towards team trump is at the beginning uh, in the first months of this year what we also know though is the january 6th committee hearings definitely accelerated some things but it wasn't the the reason that the justice department began looking at team trump they sought and obtained in late april phone records for many Trump White House officials, going all the way up to former chief of staff Mark Meadows. And so even in April, before any hearings had begun, here the Justice Department was sifting through key communications to piece together the roadmap of how Trump's allies were using the levers of power, manipulating them to fraudulently claim the election was rigged and block you know, what has been a wonderful tradition in our in our democracy, and that's the peaceful transfer of power. So, Carol, what we had been getting all along sort of publicly was that uh, the DOJ was working their way up, right? They were going to start with Michael and get their way all the way up to Tony Soprano. Do you think that that what we're finding out today in this breaking news, is it a result of prosecuting the, the, the low-level people, the Ali Alexanders, the actual insurrectionists on the ground? Is that what led to this? Or do you think that this investigation and calling for phone records was already something that was going to occur regardless? I think there are two tracks here, and it's such a good question that you ask, because this is not your typical Department of Justice investigation from what my colleagues and I have been able to discern. You know, it didn't start with Michael and move up to Mr. Corleone. And I make that joke, but it, that is the typical drug cartel investigation. That is the typical typical major white-collar conspiracy investigation or corporate and public corruption investigation. And that doesn't appear the case here. There's, the two tracks were the, C, the, the Department of Justice put all of their energies early on in the days after January 6th into investigating and prosecuting the rioters that stormed the beaches at Normandy, right, stormed the mm-hmm. Capitol. But um, it, it was only later that they began really – looking at the conspiracy that many critics of the Department of Justice say they feel happened right in front of their face. And that was President Trump and his allies perpetrating a a, a fraudulent agreement in their view, I stress in their view, to, to, to push the big lie, to try to block Vice President Pence from certifying the election, 
I do not have any doubt that Merrick Garland believes they are rolling uphill. Um, and maybe there there is a progression that will get to that stage. But right now, it's a much more broader uh, net that is trying to gather everything about Team Trump and piece together what potential crimes may have occurred, including, you know, the most serious one, seditious conspiracy to obstruct a government proceeding. And that is the the certification of the election, the certification of the victory of Joe Biden. Well, look, I, I if they're rolling it up that hill, hopefully they'll be running it up that hill sometime soon, because this is the kind of breaking news that leads people to believe that a prosecution should be imminent. Paul Butler and Carol Lenning, thank you so much for joining us tonight on The Readout talking about breaking news. Dr. Anthony Fauci joins me next to talk about efforts to check the spread of monkeypox and how to protect yourself from COVID variants this fall. We'll be right back on The Readout. Monkeypox. That's right. Monkeypox continues to spread with nearly 3,500 confirmed cases now reported in the United States alone. The Biden administration is weighing whether to declare the outbreak a public health emergency. According to The Washington Post, Biden's decision could come this week, tied to a planned announcement that about 800,000 additional vaccine doses will be distributed following completion of a review by the Food and Drug Administration. Today, Matt Ford described the symptoms of the viral disease, which he contracted in June. I got a call on Friday, uh, June 17th, alerting me that I'd been exposed uh, a week before. Um, shortly after, I had really intense flu-like symptoms pick up, and then I had lesions appear all over my body. At its you know, peak, I counted more than 25 all over. Joining me now is White House Chief Medical Advisor, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Thank you so much, doctor, for joining us this evening. First off, I, I just have to ask, it, because we're hearing this term monkeypox, we know that it's spreading, it's 3,500 people. How is monkeypox spread? And do we have concerns that the way it's spreading now may change and metastasize over time? Well, it's spread by close skin to skin contact. The lesions are pustules on the skin. Sometimes you can make them easily visible. You see them sometimes in their early form. You may not notice them or confuse them with other skin lesions. But it's 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 really skin to skin contact is the major way. Likely, if you have pustules that spill over, for example, onto clothing or other inanimate objects, it can spread. This is a virus right now that it has inserted itself into the community of men who have sex with men. And about 99% of the cases that have now been reported are within that demographic group. That doesn't mean that other groups are going to be essentially uh, free of it because there can be a spillover into cases. So that's why we were taking it very seriously. First of all, for the community at risk, we want to make sure that they are protected. We want to make sure that they get enough testing, enough vaccination, and there's a therapy for it. But it is a problem, Jason, that we take very seriously because it is spreading at an alarming rate. As you showed the numbers there, now more than 80 countries have had over 18,000 documented cases, and that's probably an undercount. So you're saying it's it's primarily through sort of intimate sexual contact. 
Should we as a country from a public health perspective, should we be moving back to maybe 2020 or, or at least early 2021 standards where we go back to social distancing, where we uh, no longer shake hands, we just sort of no. do elbow bumps? You're saying that's not necessary. No, no, no. I think the idea, don't confuse that, Jason, a social distancing is when you're dealing with a virus that is transmitted by the respiratory route. There's no indication at this point that it is transmitted by the respiratory route. All indications from the demographic and epidemiological profile is that it is transmitted by close skin-to-skin bodily contact, which is the reason why when you listen to the people who have been afflicted with this and you talk about the circumstances, thus far, almost invariable, they say, well, I had a sexual contact over the weekend with someone I didn't know very well. And now all of a sudden, a few days later, I have these lesions appear. That is a recurrent theme. There's no indication at this point, although you always keep an open mind as to other modalities of spread. At this point, it doesn't appear to be anything other than what we're talking about, close person to person, skin to skin contact. So, Dr. Fauci, we've seen uh, sort of a, a rise in cases again, the BA5 variant in places like Los Angeles and, and Dallas. And we've also seen a number of, of prominent public officials, uh, you know, Vice President Harris, President Joe Biden, Manchin, Susan Murkowski have all been caught, have all caught COVID. My question for you is many of them have sort of made a point of saying, hey, look, I got it. I'm taking Paxlovid. I'm happy I'm vaccinated and I'm working through it. But at the same time, we've also seen reports that say that this idea of working through COVID may actually strain the body and lengthen the systems. Where do you stand on this idea that people should be working through COVID regardless of how mild they think their symptoms are? Well, uh, first of all, you've got that's a really good question, Jason. Thank, thank you for asking it. It really depends upon your symptomatology and your and your energy level. I'm one of those people who were vaccinated, doubly boosted, who actually got infected. I had a very, very mild case. I had a little bit of a sore throat. I had one day of a fever that responded very well to Tylenol. And I had one night where I was having a lot of runny nose and blowing my nose. The next morning, I went on Paxlovid that night. The next morning, I felt very well. I didn't stress myself, but I did work in my uh, capacity as the director of a research institute, I did work via virtually on a Zoom. I rested a little bit more than I usually did, but I essentially fulfilled all of my functions. Now, if I was sick with a high fever and aches and real fatigue, certainly I would not have tried to push myself. So what you're trying to say is don't push yourself, but do what you can do in a measured way, being prudent about it. That's what I was doing. And that's what the president actually did. I mean, he performed many of the functions because each day he was feeling better and better and he continued to improve. So there's nothing wrong with fulfilling your functions so long as you do it in a protected environment. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us tonight. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Celebrating the grand opening of the new Jackie Robinson Museum in New York City, dedicated to his groundbreaking work both on and off the field. We're back in a second. Talk about that. 
It's been 75 years since Jackie Robinson changed America. It's a long time. It's, it's, it's Trump's age. Breaking Major League Baseball's color barrier. Today, the Jackie Robinson Foundation opened a museum in his honor in New York City. Well, most of the world knew him for blazing a path for other black ballplayers, or maybe more recently you saw him depicted by Chadwick Boseman in movie 42. It was his work off the field that helped move the country forward. As a black man, I find it quite discouraging to look around and find how little has been done to lift minorities from the depths of poverty and despair. Before his death in 1972, Robinson helped shift public opinion. The museum will showcase Robinson's work to expand equality in advertising, broadcasting, and business. Jackie's son, David Robinson, not to be confused with the basketball player, told NBC's Harry Smith that his father was very aware of the position he was in. Baseball was even, for my father, a social development tool. His success was as a, a social change agent. Today's museum opening is another major milestone in that legacy, and it could not have been done without his widow, Rachel Robinson, who turned 100 years old earlier this month. She was out on hand to cut the ribbon. And that's tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.